Pedagogies for Social Justice podcast brought to you by a student staff partnership at the University of Westminster. This is a platform for students and educators to exchange knowledge and encourage discussion about the current challenges facing higher education. I'm your host Kyra and this is our second part of our two-part episode with Westminster lecturer in English literature K.M. Graham. To dedicate some time to talking about uh, Black History Year, um, that initiative at Westminster. And this is an initiative that recognises that, you know, having a month dedicated to Black history will never be enough. So it has been their aim to kind of host workshops, seminars and kind of other spaces that not only explore Black history, but reflect on how it's kind of shaped the Black experience today. Um, When did you become involved in Black History Year and why is this a project and event kind of series important to you particularly? So I became involved not at the very beginning but sort of just after it had taken shape as a year Um, and I became involved because um, along with um, our friend Jennifer Fraser um, I was organising the School of Humanities New Writing Festival and we thought here's a really great opportunity to do like a crossover event we can join forces with the Black History Year team and we can arrange a panel discussion and it ended up being panel discussion about um, like Black Voices in the Black Archive. Um, and thinking about how black writers used used archives to sort of uh, shape the the creative work that they were doing. Um, And then I stayed because I was like, I don't want to do a one-off thing. I want to I want to make a meaningful ongoing contribution to to what is just like such an important project. Like, as as you just said, refusing the confines of a month I just think it's, it's so important because it's, it's just another way of containing stories and voices and peoples, right? And it's wrong. And I think to, to have a group of people who, you know, wanted to get together and say, we're going we're gonna to change that, say no, it's, just, it's, it's like, great. It's like, that's good energy, isn't it? When you're like, I'm not going to do what you're going to tell me to. Um, and, you know, I want to, so I think there's a, there's a massive political importance to what we're doing and I want to be part of that I want to contribute to that um, and I want to be the kind of ally that, that shows up in an ongoing fashion not just a like oh I'm here because this is a moment in the year where our interests collide like I want to make a you know I want to make an ongoing contribution and to to, to be present and to stand up um, that just feels really important for me and also the Black History team are just like wonderful you know it's, it's, a, it's a great a great pleasure Amazing. And of course, you also play a key role in our own steering group on the Pedagogies for Social Justice projects. But in all your experience of kind of being on um, steering committees and kind of leading your own projects, what are some of the major lessons that you've learned about kind of like leadership and partnership, particularly in movements towards kind of like social justice? Oh, yeah, tr- trying to trying to pin down one, one answer to that one is kind of it's kind of tricky, isn't it? But I think that I think that we need to think here about who, who we're centering, um, what what voices are we are we who who are we listening to? What voices are, are we centering? Who are we working in partnership with, and how are we sort of contributing um, to those? And I think that um, I think that making sure that the people who are in I mean, A, I think both of those faces work so well because they have like leadership, but they're also very sort of non-hierarchical spaces. 
like I mean you know you, you do such an amazing job of like chairing of chairing those meetings and, and leading <laughs> those discussions and which you do because you're you're so prepared and and so thoughtful in how you do it and in in Black History Year you know Debs is just such a wonderful kind of sort of de facto leader but also everyone in those spaces is there to contribute everyone in those spaces is there to take part and everyone in those spaces has each other's backs and I think that that's just absolutely that those are those are those are sort of communities of support and I think communities of care as well mm -hmm. um, I was I think we reflect on this quite a lot I think in our in our pedagogies for social justice meeting that just the importance of like sitting and listening to each other yeah um, the power of that is like is, is so wonderful it's so restorative like you know you can be having a, a kind of terrible day or week or whatever and you think oh god another two-hour meeting to go to get in that room and instantly you're just like oh yeah we're, we're here to like just care and to think to think slowly and to to build in an ongoing fashion and it's the same in black history year right like we revisit the same conversations the same sort of how are we going to develop this what are we going to do but there's no we've got to do it now 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 you know even though I think both groups feel university pressure to like produce now 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 but both managed to resist it in different ways um and I think that's that that so much of that comes from you know good good leadership but also flat leadership as well if that, yeah. if that makes sense yeah no I completely agree and I think coming into this myself like I've I've learned how as much as these spaces need to be like transformative and you know doing the work like but they also need to be spaces of healing and I feel like that's so important to that like just coming off your point and yeah, yeah I'm happy that you feel that way like being in those meetings and things like that it's amazing Absolutely. well I think I think they're both the both spaces for storytelling as well right like even whether that's a story of you know the kind of the utopian story of the world the worlds that we the worlds that we're trying to build or whether those are stories about like how our day has been or you know whether those are stories about you know black entrepreneurs or you know whatever whatever those stories are that, that those are stories in which we facilitate storytelling and that storytelling for me again I'm a romantic I love literature but like for me storytelling brings knowledge it offers compassion it asks us to reflect and I think so often universities can be spaces can demand demand that their spaces of production yeah and anything we can do to resist that I think well I think storytelling is a really good way to resist that and I think both of these spaces mm -hmm. just foster really lovely environments for that so yeah um, so moving on, I think when it comes to like social justice movements, people who align and kind of involve themselves in that kind of work might consider what they're doing to be a practice of like allyship and identify themselves as an ally. In a kind of general sense, what does being an ally mean to you? So I think being an ally for me means listening to and showing up for communities that are, are, are marginalised. It means acknowledging and interrogating um, the ways in which you are privileged and others aren't. Um, I, I think being an ally can be such a kind of deeply powerful thing. Um, and I think, you know, I, I really genuinely believe that taking allyship seriously and actually like showing up to work in coalition um, can create real social change. But I think for me, being an ally is about action. It's about actually showing up. And it's about taking part in making change. So for me, I think being an ally is very much about well, in order to be a good ally, it's about reflecting on how you can how you can take part, 
how you can do that work and also how you can constantly kind of develop and move move forward as an ally because I think you know so we might all be at different stages in like our journey of being an ally right maybe you're at the listening and reading stage but then make sure that turns into the action stage you know maybe you're in the self-reflection stage make sure that turns into the reading stage or, or whatever that whatever that looks like for you there's no I'm not going to map a progression right but thinking about what you can do so for me I think I think I, I would say around around Black Lives Matter so, so, so sort of since 2013 there's obviously like social media has been such a important part of, of social justice and about fostering these conversations and having these conversations and I always I, I I can when I reflect back I can think about moments where I was like okay I better get better at social media I've got if I want to do this I've got to get better at social media like, I'm not good at social media it, it makes me anxious it does not make me happy occasionally I'll put a picture of my cat on Instagram but like <laughs> I am not I, it's, it's not an arena that I'm confident in should we say and like and and it took me a while to be like okay but but then that's not how you be an ally Mm -hmm. figure out what it looks like for you you know and and you're doing this work in your teaching so just think about how you can do it more do it better make broader changes speak to more people about it um and so I think it's really important to think that being an ally will look different for different people but it's asking yourself Mm -hmm. what are you doing practically (laughs) like who are you listening to um and how are you developing because yeah. it's not being I think in some ways I think some some of what we're some of the the, the pain and violence that, that that black communities and that queer communities perhaps in particular are experiencing at the moment is actually because we've had a very static model of allyship in which allies haven't really felt like they need to like reflect on what it means to be an ally what it means to be like a, a friend to the gays or whatever like that 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 reflection hasn't taken place there's been this sort of static mm-hmm. staticness and I I wonder what yeah I, I think being an ally is a, is a mobile developing position that, that we need to reflect on yeah thank you and like I'm so happy you make that point of like being an ally looks different for everyone like you know we need people on I was having a conversation about this with somebody quite a while back but like you know we need people on like the front line in the protest we need people in the academy we need people in government like you know there's so many different ways that you can be an ally and I'm happy that you picked up on that point yeah so important we can all we can all we can all take part we should all take part exactly yeah so how do the responsibilities of kind of an ally differ from those of a white ally, would you say, particularly within like kind of anti-racist and decolonial work? So, again, I think this is a really good question. And I think it's it's a really difficult thing because I think that being a white ally, whenever you're any kind of allyship involves a kind of self-reflection and it, uh, involves acknowledging the sort of privileges that you hold or that you have benefited from and I think what white allies have to interrogate a thing that we've been trained not to see Mm -hmm. we've been trained not to speak about um and that for a lot of people is really difficult to talk about um and so there's a so white allies have to do that work and get over that defensiveness um and white allies have to sort of let go I think of positions of privilege um, positions of silence um, and I think that can be really really difficult for people um, 
And I think for some white allies, there's a tension in acknowledging that you've benefited from structural racism, um, but also being like, you know, I, I didn't do structural racism, but I'm benefiting from it. And as long as I don't talk about it, I'm perpetuating it. And I think that move is, is, is difficult for people. Um, and I think that, yeah, I, th I think that self-reflection is hard. And I think being a white ally means doing that work. Mm -hmm. um, and it's like, it, it's really rewarding work. Um, it's socially rewarding, intellectually rewarding, powerful, powerful thing to do. Um, and there are loads of resources to help you do it. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and you can you can do and make that change. But I think one of the things I often see in my role as sort of EDI lead for the School of Humanities is I see that defensiveness and I see that anxiety and I see that fear when people are asked to reflect on who they are as a white person and who they are as a white person in, in the academy. Yeah. Um, and, and I think also like being a white ally in spaces like a university, a space of white privilege, um, means you have a voice and you need to use it mm -hmm. um you can make change you need to make it you know for me and what would you say are some of the risks of doing kind of allied work like in your experience or have you seen there are ways in which like it can be more destructive than transformative yeah so again I think it's a really interesting question I think I think it's you have to be so careful when you're doing this work because I think firstly I think you have to be like a, a trustworthy white ally. Um, I'm, so, I'm taking that term from um, a woman called Melanie S. Morrison, and, and it's just the idea that you've got to be reliable. You've got to show up when everyone isn't looking. Um, you know, you've got to, you know, your, your, your black colleagues have to know that you're going to do the work when they're not there. Um, so I think that, that that's really important because allyship can be performative. Um, you know, allyship can be something you say you're doing when you're not. Uh, so I think being trustworthy, you know, I think that that performativeness can be destructive, right? If you say you're doing it and you're not. Um, I also think it's really vital as an ally to think about what spaces you're occupying and how you're taking up space in there. You know, so if I'm the only white person in a Black History Year steering group committee, how am I taking up space in that meeting? Um, you know, and, and I, I think about that a lot, partly because some of the most awful homophobia, queerphobia I've witnessed has been in gay spaces from straight people who would describe themselves as allies, um, and, but who haven't done that work of reflecting on what it means to be from the majority in that minority space, or what it means to be from the community that does the marginalizing in, in the spaces of those marginalized people. So I think it's vital that, you know, I think, I think the risks of doing that work are that if you don't reflect on yourself, if you don't reflect who you are in those spaces, you can center yourself and you, you know, you can damage those spaces by doing that. You know, you, as an ally, I'm there to listen, to support and to center other voices. That's what I'm there to do and I think, when that goes wrong, that, that can be really, you know, that can be dangerous. So I guess the question is, what are some of the first steps towards kind of doing allied work in the university? Because I think some people, particularly like white lecturers and members of staff in the university, I think they're just kind of like, where do I start? But yeah. what do you feel like is required of them first? 
Yeah, good. So I guess I, I, I feel pulled into two directions with a question like this, because there's a bit of me that wants to be like, decolonize your curriculum. Um, think about the representation of, of thinkers and speakers. Think about how you're engaging with different models of knowledge. Learn to value embodied knowledge. Do some training. Learn about and implement inclusive assessment. And then I'm like, that's quite a, quite a list. Um, and then I'm like, actually, just listen. Just, just start start by listening. Um, listen to those in your institution or, or your circle, right? This works on outside the university too. Um, listen to those who are from a kind of marginalized or non-majority position and adopt a position of care, right? Adopt a position of care. I think if we work from a position of compassion and care, that would just be a really, if more of us did that, that would be very powerful. Um, and I think that again, self, reflection like who are you in the who, who are you first what what kind of positions of power positions of privilege do you occupy or have been put in you know because maybe you didn't put yourself there um what how are you benefiting from that how can you reflect on that on that position and then I also think it's important for academic staff to reflect on the kind of Reflect, reflect, reflect on what meaningful change is, right? Because I think that often, you know, my big long list of things like decolonize your curriculum, value embodied knowledge, really, those can really easily turn into just like ticking boxes, you know? And, and I, that's not making meaningful change. That's not deconstructing or developing your pedagogical practice. Um, and, and I think that the, but one of the very fun, one of the very very fundamental reasons that people don't do this work is that they don't have time, right? That if we actually want to to make meaningful change, and we should want to make meaningful change, um, we need time and space to do that. It takes time to undo all of the things we've been taught. It takes time to unlearn structural racism and white supremacy and heteronormativity. Um, and if you as a lecturer feel that you don't have time to do that work, like you probably don't because we are overwhelmed, right? Very fundamentally overwhelmed. And, but tell people that you can't do it then. Tell people, I don't, I want to make this change and I can't, because I actually think that if people, again, one of the things I see a lot is people being like, oh, I can't do it. When am I supposed to do it? How am I supposed to do it? So tell your line manager that you can't, that you want to, but you can't, because if you create enough noise about that, then maybe someone will have to act on it. Um, you know, and if you, know, you say I want to be an ally, but I don't have time or space, maybe you force the institution. Hopefully, you force the institution to to create to create time and space. Um, so I think I think you know we we can we can do that tick box list of things to do, and there are so many resources out there so many resources i mean like look at the social pedagogy pedagogy <laughs> social justice website um you know for for a start but like those resources are out there but i think listening and adopting a position of care i think are, mm. are, are like a really strong base to start from yeah um actually previously i was talking to um Ipshita from yeah. international relations and she was kind of talking about how we were talking about kind of doing social justice work in the university from like the academic perspective and how she said that like sometimes with social justice there is that element of kind of like sacrifice 
like sometimes it means sometimes doing allies work means like giving up your afternoon so that you can be present at a seminar and things like that and I think it just kind of rang bells for me thinking about this quote I can't remember who it's from but kind of saying that there's always time to do in the right work and you know it's kind of how you perceive it as well yeah that's such a good point um you because you can always make time and I think uh, I think one of the things it's worth reflecting on is or one of the things it's worth asking yourself in that situation is what's 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 the most important thing um what is going to make the most change and and as academics often the things that we're told are important aren't important um like you know trying to politically pick a a thing to say but you know like writing writing module leader reports you know can take can take ages you know getting all the data for your module leader report which no one's going to look at right um but you you take time to do that actually don't don't do that like maybe I'm gonna I'm gonna radically advocate just don't do it spend that time instead doing some training or doing some learning doing some reading doing some listening like because actually that would make that would have a much more positive impact on the academic community and on your students in particular you know um so I think sometimes the institution has hierarchies of what it values or what it tells you is important and those are wrong you know we we can create space for the things that that are important and we can sacrifice the things that aren't important um for the things that are so it's again reflecting on what will make change reflecting on what has value yeah exactly this isn't to tell lecturers to miss their lectures (laughs) but you know like yeah like it is a choice and sometimes we need to say no like there's power in to say there's power in saying no as well yeah and I think I think that's also a really important thing to to center that that we that we can say no that we can we can choose you know we can choose what we work on and big institutions like to make out like we can't but but we can you know we can do that um I think flexing that muscle a little bit I think I think wouldn't wouldn't go astray yeah exactly So just going back to talking about English curricula, um, in what ways is English Lit a colonial kind of discipline? I'm sure there's multiple answers to this question, but kind of what sticks out most for you? So I think um, I, I would say that English literature is is a super colonial subject, a super colonial area, both in terms of like how it's constructed as a, as a discipline and the very way in which we use English literature without really interrogating what we mean by English. Mm. Um, It's sort of of centrally there there in the name. And I I think one of the major things for me is just always this notion of the canon that inflects everything that we do as literature scholars. Um, And the the idea also that we've got to teach the canon before we can try to undo the canon. Like, I I don't think we do. I don't think we need to spend a year doing the canon. We could spend a week doing the canon. Yeah. And then immediately go into all the exciting stuff that that undoes it and that tries to challenge it. And in doing that, we're thinking about straight away, who, whose voices are we are we centering? Um, we don't have to center 
the white men in order to decenter them, right? Yeah. Because mm-hmm. the work has already been done. The centering work has been done. We don't need to reinforce it. Um, but I think asking people to to move away from that is 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 a really sort of challenging challenging thing to do, because I think there's a sort of I think the, the canon operates in such sort of nefarious ways where there's the sort of there's there's the big canon that we all know but then we challenge the canon by just sticking extra stuff in there so it used to be kind of dead white men and now we've got a few white ladies in there too um but you know not not too many and they're also all dead um and you know we we challenge it by expanding it like maybe just ignore it what happens if what happens if we do that like something really radical i think um but then we also construct kind of smaller canons um as a way of refusing the big canon and you just again I just think let's cook how do how do we do that work without even sort of constructing a center and a margin how, how do we refuse that model of of knowledge that model of value that model of practice um which I think is a is a really important thing to do but also a really challenging thing to do because the notion of like literary value is so tied up with the canon with whiteness and with masculinity um, and also with heterosexuality, but I think we can see ways in which actually like white male homosexuality has made its way into the canon fairly easily. Um, you know, if, if we think about the, the canon as an, as an expanding thing. Um, and I think, I think the other thing that, that can make English literature a very colonial subject is the way that we position discourses or conversations that um you know come from the margins right that that often post-coloniality is a module critical race theory is a module um sexuality is a module queerness is a module um and they're not core modules they're option modules um and they're not in those sort of big core classes that we're teaching um they're things that that people do if they have a special interest in them and by doing that again, we're just reinforcing the center and the margin as, as a as a model, as a sort of spatial model of knowledge, um, which you know is dangerous. It's it, it's wrong. These are and and students know these are wrong. I've had so many wonderful conversations over the past couple of years, in particular, with students who say who've really eloquently expressed how powerfully important it is that everyone is having conversations about race not just people who are affected by racism that everyone is having conversations about homophobia not just queer people um they know this they're right we need to act on this we also know this (laughs) um we just need to act on it and we need to you know we could just flip it and we would instantly make things better I, i would say um but so i think yeah thinking about what qualifies as a niche interest or a special interest? Again, I'm using sort of scare quotes around around those words because they're, they're not niche or special. Um, you know, let, let's make let's make this core, let's make these conversations central to the backbone of of people's education. Um, and and in, in in English literature in uh, Westminster, we've just brought in this new third year module, which we've called Reading the Present. It's been sort of eighteen months or so in in the making, um, and it has at its heart an interrogation of, of race and coloniality. You know, that's where the module starts um, with this notion that, that English literature is a, is a colonial beast and we need to interrogate what that means and how it how it inflects through and, and impacts on everything that comes afterwards. 
And so we, we, we start from that point and then we work through and, you know, the, the module has a kind of historic, it's, it's arranged in three blocks, um, but each block sort of works historically. So we're going like backwards and forwards in time in ways that I think are quite exciting because we're trying to think about the ways in which, you know, colonial pasts or homophobic pasts shape our present. We're trying to ask those questions to challenge those sort of simple narratives of, of progression. Um, and, you know, we're looking at loads of different forms. So we're looking at sort of, you know, we've got prison writing, we look at short stories, we look at poetry, um, we look at Ex Machina, the, the, the film. Um, we think about trial transcripts, you know, we think about all different sort of forms and the way in which literature is absolutely central to how the social fabric is, you know, is woven and that literature has such a central place in how we understand who we are and how we change who we are and challenge who we are and how we challenge structures of power. Um, and, you know, we, the, the module ends in a place where we think about what's the relationship between literature and justice, both in a really literal sense of what's the relationship between literature and the law and how might the law be used as a tool to silence particular communities, which absolutely has been um, historically, but also like how might literature be a force for justice? And how might literature give, give a, a sort of voice to, to, to marginalised people? And, and so we end with a novel, which is a, a stunning, wonderful piece of work by Shola von Reinholdt called Lote. Uh, it was published, what, 2020? And it was published by Jacaranda Press, who in 2020 published 20 new books by Black writers, Black British writers. Um, it was the first time that anyone had ever done anything like that. It's a really, really amazing series. And this novel is absolutely astonishing. This novel is about this character called Matilda, who is looking for black queer history and she's trying to think about what it means to find you know figures from from the black queer figures from the past and you know that there's when when she finds them they are so powerful that and it's so sort of like amazing and transformative for her um but then there's also all these amazing like little historical narratives running through it which are really asking us to think about the ways in which like queer black voices, black voices in general, queer black voices in particular, have been sort of silenced and consumed by white models of knowledge. And so there's a little, there's a, I don't want to give too much away in case people read it, but there's this amazing way in which this black queer poet um, from the modernist period is literally consumed by white art theory. And it's such a powerful exploration of embodied knowledge, ju racial justice, um, the power of like queer history, the power of black history. Just think everyone, everyone should read it. Wonderful, wonderful piece of work and such a, a wonderful way to interrogate what the bodies of knowledge that prop up English literature are actually doing, you know, and how they're actually sort of consuming, consuming the marginalized in, in ways that are, you know, really distressing. Um, and yet the novel itself is like a powerful celebration. So. I, yeah wonderful piece read it so this module that you were talking about it's for third year students right English lit students yeah third year yeah. English literature students and it's a core module um that was okay, nice. when we were designing it that was absolutely we were very insistent that it was core but um other students on other humanities degrees can also take it if if they're interested so yeah it's not it's not a sort of closed thing it, it it's open um and yeah it's been it's it's been really really exciting to teach it for the first time and Honestly, some of the student work that has been produced as part of that module is some of the most amazing I've ever seen. Um, so I think it's it's also, and this is what we wanted to do was to, you know, to give students whose lives have been shaped by 
colonial legacies a chance to reflect on and speak to that and and some of what they did in response to that was wonderful so I might need to sit in on one oh, yeah, yeah. oh yeah <laughs> totally totally welcome to it. do you want to sit sit in on they do presentations sit in on the presentations because yeah that was such a moment of you know like wow you guys are mind-blowing and also students who've, who've been through the pandemic and online learning yeah <laughs> hope you're okay and they're like yeah you are look at you <laughs> amazing <laughs> So I wanted to ask, as a lecturer, do you find it challenging to kind of introduce decolonial readings of knowledge in your course? Like maybe not thinking about this core module now that you're mm -hmm. teaching, but in other kind of areas, uh, is it a challenge for you sometimes? Um, I, the, the challenge is in having the time to do it properly. and make Because like it, it, in some ways it's, it's, it's kind of easy, right? Like the material is there. It's just finding it putting it on your course and committing to it um it's exciting to do like this year i put on uh and again a very, another very contemporary novel like 2018 by michael Doncor, hold called hold it's about kind of um like it's about sort of uh sort of got two narratives one set in ghana one set in london it's sort of juxtaposing sort of sexuality desire and female friendship in those in those locations really wonderful text. We had a brilliant conversation about sort of Ghanaian history and LGBTQ rights and the histories of coloniality and the ways in which they've shaped sort of contemporary Ghana. Um, so it can be so like what, one best classes I taught this year. So super, super exciting, but making sure that you make the time to like do that properly and that you, you, you know, that you're making time to center the right voices in those conversations um, can be a challenge. Uh, but again, it's, you know, as Ipshita says, it's about making the time for the things that are important and, and making those sacrifices. And, you know, again, like, the, there's, a, there's a pleasure in doing that work, selfishly, like, you know, you're learning all this amazing stuff, facilitating great conversations, students are coming alive when you teach them, you know, and that, that's just really important. Um, so I, I think oh, there's a level on which now it's not challenging. <laughs> um, we, we can all do it. Right. Um, but I think there is a sort of I think there's a challenge in making sure that you don't take for granted what it means to to introduce decolonial readings. Right. Because it's not just it's not just me saying, oh, Michael Doncor is a black British man with Ghanaian heritage. So I'll just throw him on the course. Job done. It's about thinking, how can I as a white woman then facilitate a conversation about Ghanaian history? Right. How do I do that? How do I think about who I am in the classroom in that moment? How do I think about what voices I'm bringing in to have that conversation? You know, how do I think about how I'm letting students who might have gone in heritage speak in that space? How am I creating spaces for all of those different voices? Um, and I think that often we take for granted that that's we take for granted that if you can do it properly that that takes time that takes thought that takes reflection um you know and we live in a, a moment where we're all time poor so mm. but again we, we make space we make space yeah exactly so I guess my question is then just coming off what you said now like how can lecturers within kind of English lit begin to decolonize like their pedagogy but really like create that kind of space where um, those discussions can be had like what are kind of the practical things or is there anything that you do particularly 
Yeah, so I, I think really it's it's just asking yourself who's what voices are you centering? I, for me, that's just such a kind of useful question. And, and thinking about the level at which those different voices exist. So, you know, when, when we think about English literature or any, you know, comparative literature, you know, literally who is the text written by? Um, but like, what, who's in it? What's in it? What conversations are happening within it? What bodies of knowledge are we bringing it into conversation with? Um, you know, how are, we, how are we bringing different discourses in? How are we positioning the discourses that, that we bring in? You know, how are we making sure we're not universalizing? Because, um, you know, that, I think that's a real, a real kind of danger. Um, but then, so I think there's that kind of practical thing in terms of like your curriculum. But then for me, there's also something really important and very powerful, right, about like what, what embodied knowledge do you have? What embodied knowledge do you lack? And what embodied knowledge is in the room? Because I think often what we do is we, we privilege kind of intellectual knowledge, right? Um, and so often that kind of knowledge is, is tied up with like enlightenment histories of rationality, which are just built on racism. Um, so how can we create space for students to bring safe space for students to bring their own embodied embodied knowledge into the room into the space and often I think that means reflecting on who we are in the classroom and acknowledging that we are not a kind of abstract brain that we come in with a class history and a racial history and a gender identity and all those kinds of things and I think that um, I think that we often, as lecturers, can fall back into the position of just being like, well, I am abstract, I am just knowledge, or <laughs> well, I am just facilitating knowledge, and you're not because you're standing in front of a room full of people, just the very act of standing in front of a room full of people who are sitting down instantly brings a power hierarchy into the play, into play. If I, as a white woman, stand in front of a room full of students who are sitting down and looking up at me, and you know, who are BAME, that's another power that's inflecting on that. If I was a white man standing in front of a room full of female students, there's another sort of power thing there and I think it's really important that we think about that and I, I think I think for me that's that's really vital um and I think some like like back in my early teaching career I can think of moments where I thought I needed to stand at the front of the room and be authoritative and so I'd put my posh voice on and you know I, I, I said things and facts and actually it, did, it didn't work like honestly going into the room and thinking about who I am and reflecting on who I am not in a kind of weird centering myself way but you know reflecting on who I am in that space and acknowledging that I don't know things the power of saying I don't know what do you think or where is that question coming from or do you want to say a little bit more about that like letting someone else's like knowledge into the space and drive the conversation, I think is a, is a, a wonderful, wonderful thing. You know, not, not pretending I'm something I'm not um, and, and, and not, and acknowledging that, again, like trying to find ways of not just leaning into the empty vessel model of teaching, right? The students know more than me about loads of things. So my job is not to like tell them stuff. My job is to facilitate a conversation about things that we've all read. And there will be moments where, because of my experience, I have a different kind of knowledge, but my job is to introduce people to that knowledge, not to be the expert on that knowledge. 
And so I think that 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 so so I guess those three things then thinking about what what voices are you centering in terms of your curricula, thinking about who you're allowing to speak, thinking about how embodied knowledge is is allowed to be present and is valued in your classroom spaces, and thinking about who you are when you stand at the front and what you're, you're there to do, what your role is. I think those three things can really help decolonizing both your pedagogical practice and, and your curricula. Because I think yeah. too often we forget that those things go hand in hand, right? Yeah, absolutely. And like, for me personally, like even still as a student, like I think I learn so much from the lecturers that are just like transparent and just kind of treat us kind of like as equals. And like, you know, this is like an equal discussion that we're having here rather than just the typical, like you say, like, you know, standing at the front and then just saying all these things. Like, I think it makes such a difference to the learning experience and like, you really get the most out of university that way, I think. Yeah, because you're involved in a conversation. And that's that's what that's what that's what good that's where good learning lies, right? In in having having conversations. And conversations should be like multivocal. Yeah. <laughs> Not just exactly. person dominating. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And I guess lastly, just for this segment, what advice would you give to students um, in or entering university that also kind of want to demand social justice within that space? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think firstly, like, thank you for coming in and making that demand, <laughs> um, because I think we 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 need we need you to do that. Um, it's a, it's it's a hard thing to do. So, thank you for doing it. And then I would say, like, community and support are vital for doing this work. You know, I think this is probably implicit in the things we said about um, pedagogies for social justice and, and Black History Year, but finding finding a work that's already happening and that you can get involved in is really valuable. And then those spaces as community support um, learning spaces, I think, are also really, really, you know, valuable things because we work better when we work together, right, and when we're listening to each other. Um, and so I think things like, you know, things like Black History Year, things like Pedagogy for Social Justice, student societies, um, you know, we're, one of the things that we have, like, at Westminster is we've got our, our EDI champions, so from each school, students who paid to do work around EDI, you know, finding those opportunities, finding those structures and getting involved with them. I think is a really good way to, to, to make that demand for social justice. Um, and then I would say like that there's lots of channels available for students to, to sort of voice their opinions and to make those demands. Like, and those might be things like your course reps on whatever course you're doing. Those might be things like talking to the student union um, and like use those channels that are there, but also ask for evidence that someone has responded to them. Um, because I think too often those channels that we build channels that encourage people to say stuff, but then don't, but then they're just echo, like echo chambers, right? If, if a student is coming to me and saying, this is a problem, I, I think I have an obligation to say, this is what we've done about it. But too often that, that reciprocity isn't, isn't part, it's not a conversation. Um, so ask for, ask for sort of proof of evidence of change or evidence of action. Um, and then I would also suggest to those students, go rogue, right? Um, that fine, there are these things that already exist, but you can also go rogue, like get the email addresses of people in power and email them. Email the VC, like his email address is on the internet. Um, I, I'm using he because the Westminster VC is a, is a man, I don't mean to 
gender or VCs, um, but like refuse that hierarchical model that tells you that you can't speak to these people because they're too high up. Um, like whatever that might mean, um, they are there to create an environment in which you can learn. That's their job. And if you feel they haven't done that, tell them and reach out to them um, because they, they have to listen. That's what their job is. And I think too often they're sort of cloistered away. Um, so reach out to them. Don't, don't listen to that hierarchy. Just go have at them. You heard it here first. Go rogue. <laughs> yeah. Can I can I add one thing to that as well? Yeah, of course. I I think I think that I would also say to students who are doing that valuable vital work of like demanding social justice within the space of the university or with, within any space, right? Anyone who's doing that work of demanding social justice, I think the other piece of advice I'd give them is that work can sometimes be really exhausting. It can sometimes be really hard. Um, you know, giant institutions are slow um, and not the most responsive beasts in the world. So make sure you're taking care of yourself. And if you need to take time out, that's okay. I think sometimes it can feel like we've got to get up and do social justice and then go to bed, get up and do social justice. And sometimes we need to just get up and like play with a puppy or go for a walk or eat an ice cream, whatever. Um, because sometimes like actually just going to an art exhibition is also doing social justice. Um, so find ways to take care of yourself within doing that work. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think when like doing self-care allows you to do the best work that you can do as well. And I think not many people, um, they realize that too late or they just don't know. And I think, yeah, I'm happy that you raised that point. So unfortunately we're coming to an end to this interview. I could probably go on like and now I'm having a really lovely time <laughs> <laughs> but as a question I like to end on what is something you'd like to see happen or see develop within higher education in the next 10 years yeah um so I, I think I, I've kind of got two things that that I would say here and the first is I want to see institutions create meaningful space for people to do the work of decolonizing um and I think that means time and you know time and space to reflect um i think that's vital i think institutions have a responsibility to do that um and i think that if they don't do that they're just continuing this situation in which you can make a lot of noise but you aren't making any change and i think that that you know that you know we we both know and we've we've reflected on this already that to do that work takes space it takes care it takes slowing down it takes conversation it takes storytelling those things take time so make that investment because if you make that investment you can change the game like the 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 the, the power of what you can do by creating that space I think is 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 so important um, and then my other one and this is this is the thing I, I like to say in meetings that no one ever knows how to respond to. Um, but I think we have to challenge hierarchies in really meaningful ways. Because um, universities are so hierarchical, like in terms of how we, how we construct the space of the seminar to how we're literally arranged as an organisation. We, you know, and they're so, so, so hierarchical. And, you know, we only need to the majority of institutions are also like very white at the top um, and you know that's just then we're just reproducing structural racism just reproducing white supremacy and we have have to challenge that um, you know they're also often straight people in positions of power as well and we you know 
we have to challenge that. And I think that as long as we're in inclusive, and as long as we're in hierarchical spaces, excuse me, um, we're not in inclusive spaces. As long as we're in spaces that rely on an imbalance of power to function, we are not doing inclusive work or creating inclusive spaces. Um, you know, and I, I, so I think, I think in the next 10 years, we have to address that. Um, I think if we could do that, that would be really radical and powerful thing. And again, the, the kind of work we could do, you know, in terms of coloniality, in terms of like diversity, in terms of, I don't know, just like what learning means or how we think about learning, I think would be astonishing. And I think we do little, we get little glimpses of it when we do like partnership work. Get little glimpses of it, you know, I, I keep saying it, but it's just, I think it's wonderful. In Pedagogies for Social Justice, we get glimpses of just how, how powerful and radical that transformation could be. And I think that we need to, that needs to go bigger, right? So challenging hierarchies. Kay, thank you so, so, so much for, you know, being here today, sharing your thoughts and just being open to this. Like, I feel like I just know you so much deeper now. Oh, <laughs> like good, glad. <laughs> for sure, for sure. It was <laughs> absolute, absolute pleasure to, to have this chat with you. And thank you for these amazing questions. Like, actually, like, I feel like I doing that work is, is a powerful thing for me, you know, because again, <laughs> spaces of reflection spaces of conversation they're transformative so so thank you for creating that space oh thank you so much well I will see you soon and um, yeah thank you again brilliant all right take care Kyra and take care everyone who's listening to find out more information access our tools or get in touch visit us at blog.westminster.ac.uk slash psj Thank you.